we're going to start this week uh, where we left off. As we uh, work our way through basically the entire Old Testament in three weeks, which is, I'm impressed. I don't know if, I mean, it's, it's a lot. And I, I bet when you started this series, we're looking at these Old Testament birth stories. You probably didn't expect to get a crash course on the entire Old Testament history. Yet we're finding out that uh, together these stories are, they are really significant birth stories on each step of the people of Israel's story. So here's, here's what we've covered so far. Um, it, it starts with Abraham, who has many children, actually one, but eventually grandchildren. Oh, he has Isaac, and then, and then who has Jacob, and then Jacob has 12 children, and they become the 12 tribes of Israel, if you remember. Uh, but not right away. First, one of Jacob's sons, uh, by the name of Joseph, great name, uh, ends up in Egypt, where they grow into this nation only to be feared and then oppressed, becoming slaves. For, for, so generations later, God sends Moses. And we learned last week that the uh, gospel of Matthew uh, was told, told of Jesus' birth in a similar way as Moses. We uh, looked at, uh, hey, Madeline, my clicker's not working. That's okay. I think I'm, there we go, cool. Um, so we looked at this last week. If you had a chance, you could check out the, the sermon, but it kind of walks through how Moses' story and the story of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew are really similar. Like the Gospel is written with Moses in mind. So ultimately, um, as we remember, Moses doesn't lead them to the promised land. Joshua does. And once in the promised land, they settle in. There's a fair amount of violence and war, as is often the case in ancient stories. And, and in the end, these 12 tribes divide different parts of the land and begin living there. But at this point in the story, Israel is not a nation. Israel has this land, but it's a collection of tribes, 12 tribes, if you remember. And so the little order they have is through what they call judges. They're these local quasi-governmental leaders, um, and you can read about the judges in a book called The Judges. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very clever Storytelling here in the Old Testament. So there's this birth narrative in the book of Judges um, that we're going to actually skip over for now. It's during the time of this tribal law. It's the birth narrative of Samson. And if you go and read Samson's birth narrative, and some of you might know the story of Samson and not realize he's got a little birth narrative in there, you realize it actually does share some similarities with the Christmas story, specifically in the Gospel of Luke, specifically with John the Baptist. And uh, But the people, they didn't want to live under tribal law anymore. They wanted to become a nation, which means the people of Israel, these 12 tribes, all kind of living across this land, they wanted a king. And that is where we pick up the story today, on the cusp of this tribal, ancient family becoming a nation. It's interesting to think about all of this is that, uh, the interesting thing about all of this is that God didn't actually want them to be a nation. It's this great uh, story in the, in the Old Testament that you can read where God's like, no, actually, you probably shouldn't become a nation. Uh, Shane Claiborne has a great book based on this called Jesus for President that I found very formative, and he, he spends some time in this passage. So God didn't want them to have a king. God was building a, a, a people that would be in relationship with God, not, not in relationship with a king or look like other nations. So God tells them that they shouldn't want a king. They aren't a, to be a nation like other nations. But in the end... The people persist, and they beg, and they plead, and they are granted a king. 
Um, Finn is learning this simple lesson, be careful what you ask for. We've watched Home Alone 1 and 2 both times. Uh, he, uh, he asks, like, I wish I could just have Christmas by myself. I wish I could go on vacation by myself. And it's this moment in the second film where Finn was like, oh, he should be careful what he's asked for because he knows that's what's happening now because that's how the story. So you got to be careful. So they get a king, and it doesn't work out quite the way they want. But, but this is where the story of, uh, this is what's happening around the story of Samuel. God gives them a child uh, who, who's not going to be a king, but he's going to be the person who would appoint the first two kings of Israel. So it's the starting of this they're going to get a king. And that's how Samuel's birth story, birth narrative happens. Samuel comes at the end of a period of judges and serves as a kind of tribal leader, um, a, a judge of sorts, but he's also this priestly role, and he also is a bit of a prophet in the end. He's, he's the one who will not only appoint the first king of Israel, Saul, who they ended up not liking, but the second as well, King David, who becomes Israel's favorite king. And by favorite, I mean they freaking love David through the whole story. If you see any mention of David in the Gospels and how Jesus is in the line of the King of David, it's because the people of Israel loved King David. So here's the story of Samuel's birth. And let me say, as much as Matthew's story of Jesus' birth was pulled from Moses's, uh, Luke's story of Jesus is really rooted in Samuel's. So they're pulling from two different birth narratives, which is why, one of the main reasons why Matthew and Luke's stories are a little different, okay? So this story is a lot like Abraham's story, but at the time, it starts with a name of someone called Elkanah, as far as I know how to pronounce it, and he's introduced in Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. My clicker's not, there we go. There was a certain man from Ramatham, a Zufite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jehoiam, son of Elihu, son of Toho, son of Zup, and an Ephraimite. And that is a lot to keep track of, and it just keeps going. Verse 2, he had two wives, one called Hannah and the other Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had none. If you've been with us for this series, are you getting some flashbacks? <laughs> this reminds us, and it's meant to remind us of the stories of Abraham and Jacob from two weeks ago. This has become um, a trend. Uh, we are invited into Hannah's struggle, similar to uh, Abraham's story. We get invited into, uh, just as in Abraham's story, we get invited to Hagar's struggle and, and Sarah's struggle. So here, we really get to see the story unfold from Hannah's point of view, and as somebody who likes to do a little bit of creative writing, the point of view you choose to write a story matters. And here, we get the point of view from Hannah. Not only can she not have kids, but her sister mocks her for it, her sister wife. She picks on her, she makes fun of her, and all of this together is mean to her, and this makes life for Hannah um, miserable. Now, you've got to remember there's a lot of pressure to have kids during this time, more so than even today. And so to have that pressure plus, plus someone mocking you, I mean, Hannah becomes depressed and loses hope. And before we tell you what happens, I want to stop and ponder this for a moment. You see, in all of the stories of Israel becoming a nation, there's, there's always those who fit in 
and who are well-off, women who can have children, men who are talented and loved by all. And then there's always those who don't fit in, you know, who, 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 uh, who, who struggle or suffer in some way, women who can't have children, men who are hated or beaten or looked down on or sold into slavery. I mean, think of the, some of the men in the story. Joseph, who became a great hero, was sold into slavery. David, the, the, their favorite king, was too small and too young to be considered king originally. And Sarah, Hannah, Rachel couldn't have kids. Hagar was just a slave. But, but what I find so beautiful about the Bible is that when there are two kinds of people— those who have and those who don't. The story almost always follows the one who doesn't. Almost every time, or at least more often than not. If there are two women in the story, and you've seen this if you've followed along in this series, if there's two women in the story and one has lots of children and feels blessed by God and the other doesn't, the biblical story usually follows the one who can't have kids. The story follows the one that society would shame, the one that the family would make fun of, the one who was suffering or depressed. There's, all, there's something about the story of God and how God works in this world that God has a special heart for those who are hurting. And this is important to remember. Uh, it's going to come back later. Uh, later, Hannah's going to sing a song, the same song that Mary sings when she gives birth to Jesus. And this observation is what the song is all about. It's simple. If you are hurting, depressed, struggling, suffering, having an all-around hard time, if you have questions and doubts and you can't make sense of life and faith and you're just doing the best you can, well, not only are you in good company, but when picking between you and someone who has it all together, God would pick you. This is a bit of a warning for those of us in the room who think we have it all together, actually. Paul would explain it later like this. In the early church, he would say, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is a major theme through all of Scripture. And it's certainly true for Hannah's story. We learn that Hannah is so distraught and so depressed and she hates her life. And she finds herself like this. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. For years, this, this sister wife provokes her. For years. So much so that whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she wept and would not eat. She's, she's under so much distress that she couldn't stop crying. She wouldn't eat. And you have to understand that, you know, her husband... Very important role in this story. He, was, he loved Hannah, and he did his best. And it is possible to truly love someone and still fail at it. This is a perfect example right here in, um, in Elkanah. Uh, her husband would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Her answer is no, by the way. <laughs> like, he doesn't get it. He just, he, he does love her. It's just, it's, it, he doesn't understand what it is that she wants, what she's experienced. She, he probably doesn't realize that his other wife is making her life miserable, which says something about Hannah. She's not ratting her out. 
So Hannah does what anyone would do when we get desperate, most of us. When we get desperate, she goes before God and she prays and, and she begs God and she pleads with God and she does what many of us do when we plead, and I don't know if you've ever done this, but she bargains with God. God, if you help me out, I will, I don't know, fill in the blank. Have you ever done this? She does it. She says, God, if you give me a child, I will give him back to you and he'll be raised in the temple. I'll drop him off at the temple. I'll leave him at the temple it'll become a servant of yours. So she's bargaining with God. She's actually so desperate and so hurting. This is in my notes, but it was in the story. You can read it. She's praying at the temple for this. And the local priest, becomes a major character later, looks at her and says, why are you drunk in the temple? Like her distress was so, like she was so unraveled in her requests from God so distraught that the priest thought she must have been drinking or something that was high. And she says, no, I'm just pleading with God. And so um, that's what she does. In the end, she's given a child. She does just as she's uh, promised. After the child had grown old enough, no longer needs to be nursed, she took him to the temple and left him to be raised by priests, which is interesting, to become a leader who would understand the ways of God. And after dropping him off, she, she breaks out in praise, and she sings a song, she recites this poem, and it goes like this. Uh, the, then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high, my mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. And she goes on, and you can read it all of 1 Samuel chapter 2. Before I say anything else, I want to step back. Um, as much as it's important to, 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 to spend time in Scripture, we have to actually understand what's going on in Scripture. And this series is all about peeling back layers of a story to better understand what the original authors were saying and what they were trying to say to their audience. You see, these stories are more than just um, history. Uh, we live in an age post-reason where what happened is the most important part of the story. Like, did it happen? Is it true? Is it factual? Like, and that, ancient people weren't interested in that. I know it's hard for us to understand that because it's like, well, whether it happened or not is the most important thing. And ancient people were like, no, it's not the most important thing. Like, what it means is the most important thing. And so um, these stories are more than just history. They're more than just what happened. The same is true for the Christmas story or stories we see in the Gospels. And some would argue that they aren't at all about what actually happened. They're only theological. But either way, I know this. They, they are intentional, and they're trying to teach us something deeply profound and theological. These, these stories weren't recorded just because it's what happened. They were written, in fact, long after the people had come and gone. They, when they wrote Samuel's birth story, for example, they, they already knew the person he would become. And they were influenced by the person that he became and the people that they had become. This, the same is true for the entire nation of Israel. You don't think about it, but they wrote down the stories of Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob and Moses. Generations later, when they had become a nation and they were telling the stories of how they got there. And so they're telling what happened in light of who they became. The same is true for Jesus. The story of Jesus was written down years and years after Jesus was no longer with us. He ascended into heaven. When the church was growing, there were little house churches popping up all over the Roman Empire. And they told stories of Jesus after they had seen what the people of Jesus would become. And that 
influences how the story is told. It's why Jesus' story in Matthew is told like Moses' story. Because they had seen Jesus come and deliver people from brokenness and pain and showing them what the true law meant, a law that would be written on our hearts, not on stone tablets, a law that was as simple as love God and love others, which all of the law and the prophets can be summarized. They, they had seen how that simple rule, love God and love others radically, had already started changing the world, and so they wrote it in such a way to tell it that way. They tell these stories having seen how this love had already started changing the world. So in each of these stories, the point of the story isn't always what's on the surface. It's what people who originally wrote them and the people who originally read them were thinking and experiencing. All that to say, there are layers to consider. Let me give you an example. Hannah can't have a kid. Hannah wants a kid, and her rival is picking on her and making her life miserable. Her husband loves her and wonders why he isn't enough. And so God gives her, but she wants a kid, so God gives her a kid. But in exchange, she has to give the kid back to God, and that kid would go on to appoint the first two kings of Israel. That's one story that's happening. But on top of that story is another. The people of Israel don't have a king. And they want a king. In fact, their rivals, the nations around them, won't stop attacking them, and it's making their life miserable. But God loves Israel and doesn't think they need a king. Like, why isn't God enough? But they want a king anyways. So God gives them a king. But in exchange, they have to give the king back to God. In other words, the king has to be a person after God's own heart. The first one isn't. He gets booted. But David is, and we love David. Do you see how Hannah's story is really the story of Israel getting a king? And do you remember that song that Hannah sang? It starts with her giving thanks to God for giving her a child, but it's, when you read it, you realize it's actually about how God would give his people a king, and more specifically, what that kingdom should look like if a king was a king after God's own heart. So one song, which is often the case with songs, by the way, one song reflects both Hannah's story and the story of Israel. This is one layer that's happening in 1 Samuel, but it's not the only layer. It gets, gets more interesting because we have the Christmas story. The Christmas story in the Gospel of Luke starts with John the Baptist, who are old and can't give birth, much like Hannah. And John the Baptist, when he's born, he's given back to God to become a Nazarite, just like Samuel. So right here from chapter 1, we know that the Gospel of Luke is telling its story like Samuel's. And then Mary gives birth to a child, and this is my favorite part. In time, the child grows up, and they go and visit the temple. And do you remember what happens when they visit the temple? Jesus, very much like Home Alone, by the way, gets left behind at the temple. And they freak out after they realize it and come back and get him. He's like, well, I, don't you know that I should be about my father's business? So, so Jesus is left at the temple in the Gospel of Luke, the same as Samuel. Only this time it was because Jesus chose as a child to be left there. And it wasn't left there for good like Samuel, but he was left there just long enough to make it clear that his story was the same as Samuel's story. But that's not the only place they share a story. The big one is Mary's song, as I already shared. In the Gospel of Luke, Mary realizes she's pregnant. She's carrying all of this tension in her heart. She meets up with her cousin Elizabeth, and she finally feels accepted and loved, and she breaks out in praise. It's called the Magnificat. And of course, Mary's song is a direct reference to Hannah's song. Not, not quite word for word. 
It's, it's like if you, um, if you knew a song, but you couldn't remember the lyrics, so you did the best to recite it, and you got pretty close, which I do all the time, and music aficionados hate. Um, but that's Mary's song compared to Hannah's song. It's similar enough. You're like, she's quoting Hannah's song. She just forgot how it went. So you have this song that reflects Hannah's story, right? She has a child against all odds. But also Israel's story, the story of how they would get a king after asking for it. But now it also reflects Mary's song. God would choose her, a a simple peasant girl, to be the mother of someone great. It's It's a miracle. But then also, I mean, logically, if you follow this, it becomes not only a song about Hannah or the people of Israel or even Jesus. It's a song about this new kingdom. The story about her son would become a different kind of king in a different kind of kingdom. And so this song has four layers, uh, which reminds me of something. Um, Let's see if you remember this clip. For your information, there's a lot more to ogres than people think. Example? Example? Okay, um, ogres are like onions. They stink? Yes. No. Oh, they make you cry? No. Oh, you leave them out in the sun, they get all brown, start sprouting little white hairs. No. Layers. Onions have layers. Ogres have layers. Onions have layers. You get it. We both have layers. (sighs) Oh, you both have layers. Oh. You know, not everybody like onions. Cake. Everybody loves cakes. Cakes have layers. I don't care what everyone likes. Ogres are not like cakes. You know what else everybody like? Parfait. Have you ever met a person you say, hey, let's get some parfait. They say, hell no, I don't like no parfait. Parfaits are delicious. No! You dense, irritating, miniature beast of burden. Ogres are like onions. End of story. Bye-bye. See you later. Parfaits may be the most delicious thing on the whole day. <laughs> okay, I... Let's be honest, I just knew you, you all would need a break from my lecture, um, so <laughs> that's what that is. But, but, but yes, the, the Bible is like an onion, and yes, not everyone likes onions, but there are layers. So with that, I want to read Hannah's song, parts of it, and I want us to consider these four layers. This is a song about how Hannah finally is having a child. This is a song about how kingdom of Israel is finally getting a king. But this is also a song about Mary who, through humble beginnings, would give birth to God's child. And finally, it's also a song about that new, kind, that new king that would come and that new kind of kingdom, which, by the way, was not going to be another political nation, just as God had always wanted. There'd be layers. So with the mind, let's look at Hannah's song. Then Hannah prayed. And said, my heart rejoices in the Lord, and the Lord, my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. So Hannah, she talks about how she's finally proved her sister wife wrong, the one that was bothering her, her rival, her enemy. Of course, that's what it means for Hannah. For the people of Israel, it means that once they get a king, they would finally prove the rival nations wrong. Interestingly enough, Mary doesn't quote this part of the song. As somebody who would give birth to a king who would tell them to love their enemies, she doesn't talk about gloating her victory over her enemies. Just an interesting observation. Verse 2. 
There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. Whether, whether it's Hannah, Israel, Mary, God, God uses those who suffer, um, those who are hurting, those who aren't proud or arrogant to do amazing things. It's like the arrogant and proud are going to be leading the way in this kingdom, not if it's the kingdom God wants to build. So God loves to use those who are counted out, so much so, verse uh, the, the next, oh, yeah. The, bows, uh, the bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. This, this is um, beautiful poetic language. And, and, you know, when we don't take time with poetry, we can miss what it's saying. But it's a language that talks about how God will take the weapons of the powerful and break them. Amen. He uses, but he'll use the struggles of the hurting to actually change the world. How those who have more than enough will run out and struggle. But, but those who currently struggle, who will have plenty. Of, it's a complete reversal of our current state of the world. Imagine if right now, and this could be a little scary for some of us, but imagine if right now your position in the world, your wealth, your influence, your assets were flipped with somebody who had none of those things. Like a, uh, like a giant worldwide version of Mark Twain's The Prince and the Pauper. Mary says it almost even better. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. This is Mary's paraphrasing of Hannah. God is uh, going to switch places. The rich will become poor, and the poor will become rich. And I I would say that this is the point of the song, or at least the point that Mary hoped to make, the, the point that the Gospel of Luke hoped to make, because it's at this point in Hannah's song that Mary stops singing. She uses one more verse to kind of land the plane, and, but that's, that's, that's where it ends. Hannah will go on, and even in the rest of her poem, she'll use similar language because uh, this is the point. Remember, remember when I, I said earlier, I talked about how God likes to use people the world has counted out? This is why. God flips the script on the world by using the people in the world, the ones that the world doesn't think are usable. This is why God uses Hannah and Mary and why God will be born as the person of Jesus into poverty and eventually die on a cross as a common criminal. Because in all of those situations, the world makes certain assumptions. The world will tell you that the rich are going to be fed and the poor are going to go hungry. The world will say that women can't do anything significant. The world will say that those who are powerful will have the greatest influence, and those who are poor and hurting won't do anything good in the world. The world will say that those who die as criminals must have lived a, you know, a horrible life. The world will say that poor people are lazy, dishonest, or criminals, that women can't have kids. If they, if they can't have kids, they're not, worth, uh, they're not worth anything, that those who have really messed up aren't worth redeeming. I'm sure you can think of other stereotypes placed on certain people in this world who are hurting and struggling. The world says that that's just the way it is. But hear this good news. 
The world does not get the final say. God does. That's what we believe. That is the good news. And God says, be careful. Because in God's kingdom, the rich and the poor are going to trade places. The hungry and the full are going to trade places. And in this principle applies to every segment of society, from from mothers to empires. That's why this song has layers. Because these principles can be applied to every layer, which means this. God cares how we organize ourselves as a people, but God also cares about your individual unique concerns. It applies to you as a person, and it applies to us as a society. Whether you're talking about national politics, your own personal struggles, God is in the business of reversing the way things are. The world says it has to be this way. God says, no, it doesn't. These songs show us what kind of kingdom God came to establish. Which means if we claim that we want to be a citizen of this kingdom, a member of God's family, we have to embrace and live into these principles. When we have, which if you've read the Gospels and you've missed this, you haven't read the Gospels. When we have more than we need, we give it away. If we have power, we use it for good, we give it away. If, if we have influence, we give it away, we use it for good. If we have money, we give it away. And when we do this, those in need of a voice, in need of our influence, in need of our resources or the food that we have, will have enough. Because we've allowed God to bring us down from having too much to just enough, which allows those without enough to be brought up to just enough. And we meet in the middle. And here's what I'm going to tell you. The kingdom of God's only experienced in the middle. If you're living up here and you want to hold on to everything you've got, you're not living in the kingdom of God. I'm sorry. It's just not, that's just not, look, you can feel however you want about that. That's just theologically, I'm saying as a pastor, not as anything else. Theologically, that's not how it works. And the same is if we're forcing people to live down here, we're not living in the kingdom of God. It happens when we are able to meet in the middle and those who have give and those who don't receive, and then we are able to live in a community. So I want you to ponder. We all go through seasons in life. I have lived on both sides. I've lived at the bottom uh, not, not in the scope of the world, of course, but in the scope of American wealth. I've lived near the bottom. I've been in need. <laughs> when we, uh, uh, even when we planted a church, we, we, my wife and I, uh, Alyssa, started out like on a half-time salary, moved to Columbus with a newborn. That was fun. We all go through seasons, and you know what? Sometimes those seasons overlap. Life is complicated like that. Sometimes there's areas where you're feeling at the bottom, mental health or whatever, but you financially are comfortable, and sometimes those flip, and sometimes those are related. So I want you to ponder this. What do you have to offer? What do you have more than enough of? Might not be money. And what are you in need of? Might not be money. Where do you see yourself? Are you someone who feels they have it all together? has more than enough to go around, or are you someone who is in desperate need for God to show up? And here's the craziest thing. And and this is one of the reasons why I'm a follower of Jesus, okay? Because I have seen this happen over and over again. It blows my mind every time. If you're here and you're like, you know, I got a lot of extra of this, 
I will give it my, my money, my resources, my time, whatever. And then almost always, there's someone else in our community who needs that very thing. <laughs> and it's beautiful when these things connect. And I wouldn't be surprised right now that you're thinking of something that, you know what, I really should give this X, Y, whatever. I should serve in this way. I should, you know, that's what comes to mind. And there's probably someone here who's like, man, I could really use help in this area. It would not surprise me. You know, today we collected hundreds of, uh, we're collecting hundreds of presents for 37 kids we're sponsoring through our work with Columbus Violence Reduction. Uh, these are kids whose uh, fathers had been identified as uh, by the Columbus police of people who are likely to engage in group and gang violence. Okay, so they were, we, we met them through the Columbus police identifying them. And so kids are growing up with dads who are connected with group and gang violence, and uh, some would count these kids out. But I look at the story and I said, no, I don't. Some would count their dads out. No, nothing's going to come of them, but I can't. Not when I read stories like this. God, God loves to use people who, who are currently struggling to eventually change the world. And, and we believe that we can break cycles of violence with kindness, and so we had to go buy all of these. We bought these presents in, in collaboration with CBR. And, and here's the great thing about a community. Some people in our community um, not only went out and shopped for presents, but they covered the cost. Very generous. Uh, but some members of our community said, we can go shopping, but we can't afford to cover the cost right now. That's okay. Other members of our community said, I can't, <laughs> I have no time to go shopping. Also, I hate shopping. Can I just donate? Yeah, that's okay. It's a tiny, tiny, tiny little illustration of what Jesus, I think, is trying to teach us. When we give what we have, whether it be time, energy, money, resources, it can all come together for a common goal. That's the kingdom of God. That's the family of God. And that's what this is all about. Those who have, give. Those who need, receive. No shame, no guilt, no pressure. Just God's grace working itself out in our lives. And that is the kind of community we're trying to build here at City View. There's a lot of ways to be generous with what you have. I'm going to talk about one. If you want to donate towards the toys, we are still collecting funds. There are two funds you can give towards right now in Christmas. I know that two funds, whew, that makes it more complicated, and it's going to confuse all of us, so stay with me. Two funds. One is called Columbus Violence Reduction. That is the fund that is helping cover the costs of the toys. We've probably covered close to half, um, and the rest is going to come out of the fund unless people donate, and that's, that's fine. We, we've got a fund for it. So that's Columbus Violence Reduction. If you go to our giving website and you click on the different funds, there is one that says Columbus Violence Reduction. The other fund that you can give towards, I know this is complicated, is the Christmas Eve Miracle Offering. It is also a fund you can select. That's the one that's going to the mothers of murdered Columbus children. And that'll be 100% just given to them to use how they, how they see fit. I believe their plan is to use it for their youth division to work with youth who might eventually you know, divert them from group and gang violence. And uh, so you can do either one of those. Um, and we're grateful if you do. But there's lots of other ways to give of what you have besides just money. But I happen to know that there's quite a few people here who love to give, financially specifically. And uh, we're grateful for that. And we're grateful if you can give above and beyond to one of these funds. So that's what it means to be a part. It's one of the ways it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. Will you pray with me?
God, we give you thanks. We trust that you're able to speak in and through us. Help us, Lord, to be people who are generous. Help us to be people who are able to work together towards common goals, where we're able to give what we have so that we might meet in the middle, that we might be people of deep generosity, that we might not hoard or think only of ourselves, that we might be generous with all that you've given us so that the kingdom of God might be experienced. We give you thanks for meeting us in this time. In your name, amen.